0: At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now what is it would an time. What if I did the
1: opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal and
0: This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Hello boys and girls, ladies and germs, this is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. The audio for this episode was recorded live at the David Geffen Hall at Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts in New York City. The event was the SOHN Conference, S-O-H-N, which is dedicated to supporting innovative initiatives to cure and treat pediatric cancer the Sohn Conference Foundation raises its funds through a unique strategy. They invite Wall Street's most successful investors to offer their expertise on stage. And you get to hear all sorts of interesting theses, different positions, and so on. And they use these presentations and this insight to inspire large audiences to give to the foundation's cause, which is supporting, curing, and treating pediatric cancer. You can learn more about it at SohnConference.org. That's S O H N Conference.org.
1: Please, welcome to the stage, Tim Ferris, everybody. Thank you so much. That's Macho Duck, 1979.
0: You can look it up. Please enjoy. Uh, Thank you all for sitting around after Biobrick to listen to the conversation I'm about to have with my good friend Josh. Thank you, Graham, for having us. And I'm going to jump into it. I usually use a much more embarrassing intro for Josh when we're recording something in private, so I'll use something a little less embarrassing. Josh Waitzkin has perfected learning strategies that can be applied to anything, which I've seen him do many times, including his loves of chess. Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, he's a black belt under Phenom and multiple time world champion Marcelo Garcia. Tai Chi push hands, he's been a world champion, and now paddle surfing and foiling. Josh spends his time coaching many of the world's top performers in many different fields, and he is the author of The Art of Learning. Please welcome to the stage Josh Waitskin.
1: All right. Hey, everybody. All right, let's get to it, shall we? That, um, that song was my trigger song for the 2004 World Championship in Tai Chi Push Ends, and Graham thought it would be fun to jack up my physiology walking out. And it's amazing how well it works. Like, I just hear two bars of that song, and I'm ready to fight like 10 dudes. So. Here we are. You can pick them out. Anybody? Volunteering? I listened to that in the three months of training camp for the Worlds and then during the, tur- during the competition and then between the finals and the sudden death playoff for the Worlds, and so which was the wildest state of my life, maybe. So it has a powerful triggering impact. So
0: you Ooh. are really a master of triggers and cues and systems. I mean, you, more than perhaps anyone I know has spent a high percentage uh, of your life in what I think people here and what I would consider the zone. And you said something to me yesterday when we were catching up a bit, which was, you feel like you've been cramming two months of learning into each day recently, which sounds incredible, sounds almost unbelievable, especially knowing you as well as I know you, because it's not like you just sit around watching paint dry all day. So why and how is that? How could that be?
1: Yeah, my, um, my training recently has been, has been super exciting. I, so I fell in love with surfing a few years ago and really took it on um, all in, but I was living in New York City, so it was difficult. And so I had to figure out how to take on surfing in a really intense way living here. So the first thing I did is I, I hadn't spent a life um, skateboarding or snowboarding or going sideways forward at all and so i had to so the first thing i did is i got a one wheel electronic skateboard with a big wheel in the middle it's an amazing invention and i that's how i started getting around new york city so i spent about a year and a half maybe 2300 miles of one wheeling 20 to 25 miles an hour through new york traffic which was a lot of fun had some amazing wipeouts but that was how i just initially just got used to burning in the experience of of being in surf stance and moving forward and it was it was really powerful and then i um, a year and a half ago, my, fam- my, my wife was game and moved my family down to a really my, my favorite place on earth, beautiful place in Latin America where the jungle meets the Pacific Ocean, and, um, and took on stand up paddle surfing and foil training all in. Initially, it was just stand up paddle surfing, and recently, it's been foiling. And so, in the past, this past fall, so sep- late August, September, I fell in love with foiling. And that's when things really went to overdrive for me. i have been using this, um, this invention called an efoil. Which is, so foiling is, I'm not sure if you can see imagine a, like a five foot surfboard with a 29 and a half inch mast going down and there's a wing. And so when you're in wave energy or you're moving forward quickly, you're, all that's in the water is the wing. And so you're, it's frictionless, it's way faster than surfing, it's incredibly intense. Um, yeah, they, Graham asked me to put together a little video. This was from a few days ago, um, just so you could see what foiling is. So you see the board is above the water. Um, this is in one of my favorite spots. And um, you're going. 25, 30 miles an hour. And the wing is all that's touching the surface. And it's super... Um, it's crazy, intense feeling. Um, and But this device I'm using, an e-foil, is really incredible. It's made by this company called Lyft. The guy, Nick, who runs it, is a real pioneer in, in the foil world. And he's built this thing called a folding prop. And so what I'm using is entering the wave under power as a propeller. But then once in wave energy, the propeller folds. And I'm just foiling as if just purely wave energy. So what it opens up is the possibility of... Um, of entering waves under power, like as if you're being towed in by a jet ski. And um, this, is, this kind of moment is hairy, because if the wave, like after the entry, this wave catches you, the white, here it's like near wipeout and then adjusting back up. If the white water catches you, it's like getting shot out of a cannon and then you're on top of a guillotine. And, and so you don't wanna have, or you have to dial in the brake falls, um, <laughs> like with one wheeling. And so what's been interesting is that as opposed to having two to four minutes of wave time. session surfing, I'll have 54 minutes or so of wave time at faster speeds. And what's what's interesting is it also opens up the ability to to do deliberate practice in surfing. It's really difficult to, similar to an investing, you have to be really creative in, in how you create deliberate practice in the surf world because the ocean is so unpredictable. It's really difficult to replicate sections, um, to hit the same thing 10, 15, 20 times in martial arts. You can just say, I'm gonna drill this thing 30 times today um, or 100 times or 200 times, whether it's a throw or a technique, a submission, and then you can try it in training. In surfing, it's very difficult to replicate the same condition once, even in a couple times in a few months. And so the foiling is really interesting because it allows me to ent- the e-foil allows me to enter the wave um, and then prop folds in, I'm just foiling the wave and I'm, I'm 20 to 30xing the amount of wave time per session but it also allows me to do really interesting things with deliberate practice like for example, when you're under speed on a foil and you go over a, a big boil and you've got a, you're in a big wave, a boil is like a huge just upsurge of water pressure, if it hits the wing or hits one side of the wing you get catapulted out of, out of control. So most people, if they're foiling, you don't have many chances to train it boils, and when they happen, it's just catastrophic. <laughs> it's a massive wipeout. Now, I, I did a session. I did two sessions where I went over 200 boils at top speed, doing tons of reps of boils or tons, tons of reps of steep sections. And then you just the learning curve is incredible, and it, it feels physiologically like between one and two months of training per session. Afterwards, I feel like I have to lie in a dark room with my eyes closed for 10, 15 minutes just to process. The brain feels like was plugged into the matrix. It's really intense. So it's kind of, this, the foiling is at the cutting edge of, of the surf world and the e-foiling with folding props at the, like the, the tip of the tip of the spear. And um, it's really powerful to feel what the brain feels like doing that and how fast the learning curve can be. I love it. And, and how
0: well the brain responds to intentional, well-structured practice. And one thing I've observed with you since we met eons ago, in these different disciplines, how well you think about the, in a sense, sort of the micro-practice, like per session, let's call it, the meso-practice, maybe on a weekly basis, and then the macro-practice, how that then can evolve and be programmed over many months. Uh, we're going we're gonna to get into how people can structure their days, how you structure your day. But what, what I'd love to ask you about is perhaps to, to reiterate a story that you've told me before that relates to deliberate practice and skiing. I don't know if you know what I'm referring to, but the most important portion yeah. of a run or the most
1: important run yeah. when skiing. Do you know what I'm referring to? Yeah, way back in the day, I had some fun days um, skiing with Billy Kidd, who was a just brilliant um, Olympic champion many decades ago. And he, he asked me, what were the three most important turns of, of the ski run? And it's a, it's an interesting question to, to sit with because most people will think it's the middle where it's most in, like where, where it, you know it's most intense most speed or the beginning to get your rhythm. He talks about the last three turns before you get on the lift, um, which is where most people are sloppy. Most people kind of lift up, they their their body mechanic it relaxes. They, they, they're but the thing is that the last three turns are what you're going to be internalizing unconsciously on the lift right up. It's true with. I mean, martial arts training my whole life, always finishing strong. Always finishing, executing a technique very well. Um, Whether it's reps drilling or a strong sparring session or foiling, surfing, always finishing strong so that the last thing you do is what's going to probably burn into you most deeply um, overnight. So harnessing unconscious learning is a huge part of what I do um, and what I train people to do. And um, that's something I think it's really important to be deliberate
0: about. Another thing you're really good at is making the the subconscious or the unconscious, or just the hidden conscious. And a big part of your learning, as I observe it, is mastering feedback and measurement. Uh, So before we get to how people can structure things, because this informs it, what types of biomarkers do you track in your coaching clients? Because I think it's very common for people to think of, say, chess as a mental pursuit, to think of something like foiling as predominantly, or jujitsu especially, as a physical pursuit. But that's really a a false separation. Uh, So what, what type of biomarkers do you track on your coaching clients, whether they're in the investment world or elsewhere?
1: Well, I've experimented with a lot over the past decade and um, what I've come to focus on most deeply is heart rate variability. I have a brilliant um, HRV specialist, Dr. Leo Lagos, who on my team who works really closely with all of, all of my teams. And, um, and so she does HRV training with, with if I'm working with a team of top decision makers, for example, with everyone on the team, ideally. And HRV is a really powerful way of training someone to get into a state of deep concentration, relaxed deep concentration, away from stress very quickly. And then tracking people's HRV, tracking people's sleep patterns. Um, We, of course, also track nutritional patterns, physical training patterns. Um, For me, it's really interesting to just... I don't like bringing technology out into the water very much, but from time to time I do and just track wave time, heart rate, different situations. I've been playing, I had a really interesting period a month and a half ago where I was foiling this, this big wave um, that I've discovered in offshore reef break and it's sort of like a non-stop drop. It just keeps on going. It, it mounts up and then you're just accelerating for 30 seconds straight and your body has this innate physiological, it feels like an evolutionary response to bail out because you're going so fast and you're accelerating, your body wants to jump out so I started doing HRV breathing um, to my resonant frequency while um, accelerating down this wave. Could you just explain what that means to your resonant frequency? What does that mean? Everyone has a unique resonant frequency. Um, that, that if you're doing heart rate variability breathing and you're breathing to your resonant frequency, it'll max to your unique frequency um, in your your physiology. It will have the biggest impact in raising alpha waves, relaxing relaxing your body, moving you from a stress state to a deep state of relaxation. So the ideal way to train an HRV is to work with a brilliant specialist. Um, and find out what your frequency is, and then tra- do breath work 20 minutes twice a day at that rhythm. And over time, it's incredible what it can do. And then you get to a place where you can just take a breath and be in, in resonance. And I, I did a lot of meditation work for years before this and a lot of trigger work before this. So, But the HRV I found what to was be... That? What trigger work. Trigger work. Like, What's that? Trigger work would be essentially... Um, Using something like a song, like "Lose Yourself," Eminem song. To, so, it, one thing I started doing decades ago would be getting myself into a peak performance state and then attaching a trigger to it, like a song or a scent. So then, ultimately, I could instead, of as to doing a 30-minute or 40-minute routine, which I might have had to do back in in the chess days, being able to listen to a couple beats of a song, or listen, or smell something, or take a breath and enter into a peak performance state. I I, I learned this lesson from a lot of years in in competition where you, you can't predict when you're actually going to have to fight. And so you might have to do with, like I remember going to a world championship in 2000 when I thought I, I, I knew it was going to, it's a long story, which I've actually, you and I have discussed before, but long story short, I, I thought I would have a t- 30 minute warning before I competed. And then this is in a world championship in Taiwan and everything changed. And I was after, I was like eating lunch and then they changed the rhythm and I had to e- compete like one minute later. <laughs> and it really taught me I had to learn how to enter a peak performance state with a breath, like instantly. Um, so HRV is really powerful and I've been playing with it in this steep wave and it's fascinating how, how quickly it takes me from this state of like needing to bail to just complete calm while making that steep drop. And then your baseline rises and then you, you can keep on just getting acclimatized in more intense conditions. What type of tools do you use for tracking these days? HRV, that is. Do you have a preferred tool for um, for, you know, the, Dr. Lagos has experimented with, with a lot of things, and she's, she, I, that's sort of her terrain. Um, I've played with a lot of different tools. I haven't actually found, it, it, to be perfectly frank, the software that I think is A++, and so I'm thinking about building some of my own. Um, but I, I don't, at this point, feel like there's the ideal peak performance training HRV software out there. Um, for a bunch of reasons. Like it does, nothing has exactly what I want. So, so people can DIY the, the
0: search for a tool uh, that as a stopgap measure might help, but let's translate it to, say, the world of investing. Uh, how would someone use their HRV to inform how they plan their day, for instance? Might they, like an athlete, wake up and look at their HRV and, like, and, and their sleep pattern and say, wow, I am not recovered, whatever that means. I'm going to defer to the extent possible, important decisions for today? Or uh, would they use it to, like you said, track if they are in a sort of sympathetic fight-or-flight state uh, and then moderate that before taking a particular phone call or whatever it might be? How, how do you take that data and translate it into the world of, say, investing?
1: Well, you know, the way I personally relate to, to biofeedback or or any kind of of technological tool is to use it to train my own somatic ability to feel where I am. And so like I don't, I don't personally want people to become dependent on technology. I want them to use technology to develop the ability to feel. So if you're sitting, like, you know, I started meditating when I was 18 years old, and it's very difficult to have feedback Then in the meditation process. Someone might start thinking for eight or ten minutes before they even realize they're thinking. One thing that's really great about using biofeedback is that you'll have something tell you that you're that you're starting to slip and you're focused. But ultimately, from my perspective, the idea is to train your intuition, your your somatic introspection, um, to feel when your quality of of presence, your quality of energy is slipping from like a 10 to a 9. When I start working with people with top mental performers, very often they could go from a 10 to a 2 before they even feel the slip. So really, I like to use these tools to train someone to sharpen their intuition, to sharpen their somatic sense for where they really are. And then, you know, for me personally, in my training, that's what I, I go with. I go with how I feel. In chess, for example, you, you, know, you have to make so many decisions. Um, and your physiological state is, is always changing. And you can't take a break and take a look at you know, what a machine tells you, you know, how, how you're doing. Um, but you can use the machine to train your ability to feel where you are. And for, inve- and for investors or decision-makers, chess players, poker players, anyone who's in a really high-stakes, intense, time-sensitive discipline, y- you want to have the ability to feel where your performance state is and adjust it on your own independently. This is,
0: this is so important, and uh, I'm glad we ended up exploring this because it, it applies to a lot It really applies to a lot. And I've seen this in, for instance, the exploration of of dietary ketosis and using devices like the Precision Extra during times when it doesn't matter. Let's just say on weekends or during vacations. So you're able to see that, I won't get into ketosis right now, you guys can look it up, but it's very interesting for a number of reasons. And you realize, oh, at 0.5 millimolars on this device, I feel like this. And then at 1.5 millimolars, I feel like this. And you get to a point where you're no longer dependent on the device. And you have that sensitivity so that you can say, you know what? I'm feeling cranky. I'm probably not yet <laughs> working off of fat and I'm a low blood sugar. Probably shouldn't send that really sensitive email right now, right? Because I'll do damage control for the next week. Yeah. Uh, how do you think about structuring a performer's day? And and you could give examples from any field, but how should someone think about that? Because you are, to me, and I, as a job, I guess, interview top performers in different fields. You are so exceptional at focusing and crafting your days and weeks and months in a way that you can focus. What suggestions or examples uh, might you describe uh, for people who are looking to better
1: structure their days? Yeah, it's a really important question. I mean, first thing I'll say is that everything that I do in a coaching capacity is individualized. So I, I, the essence of what I, if I'm working with someone who is a world-class decision maker in some realm, by definition, I have to know them so intimately before I start making suggestions to what, to what they do. Um, because I think that, that the entanglement of genius and eccentricity or brilliance and madness is so complex and so critical for people who are in the top 0.1% or so of what they're doing. And so um, I've seen... There are so many dysfunctional habits that I've seen drive brilliant creations. And then there, there are so many people who are doing things by the book who are just mediocre. Um, so that's one initial caveat that I'll say is that when I, if I'm training somebody one-on-one, I will understand them with tremendous nuance before I'll start tweaking what they're doing. That said, um, there are some core principles around day architecture that I think are really important and that are really challenging to embody in this technological age where everyone is distracted, everyone is just constant inputs. Um, everyone's so busy. Everyone feels that they should be so busy and everyone's pulled into the external all the time. Um, and people are, are, find it very challenging to structure their days or do what they want to do because of an internal relationship to their creative process as opposed to how it will look from the outside. And so I think that a proactive day architecture versus a reactive one is hugely important. I think most people um, will have lots of meetings scheduled and then maybe they'll try to jam thinking in between the meetings so, they'll have like two minutes of thinking time in, in between, which is, from my perspective, disastrous because people are, their brilliance comes from thinking. Um, so, I'll block out time, thinking time in someone's calendar, as, and then meetings will be put in between this. An alignment of peak energy periods with peak creativity work, like thinking time is hugely important. Usually, it's the reverse. People will, will like do their thinking on the walk back from lunch when they're a little bit lethargic, as opposed to do their thinking first when they wake up in the morning when, when their energy and their creativity is, is most intense. How do people how do people identify their peak? They can feel it. I have people. I mean, I I find in my diagnostic process, I find pretty consistently people are right about. I ask people to to rate one through ten how their creative how their energy levels and creative state is at different parts of the day, and then of course I examine it. But people tend to have a pretty good sense for this. Um, I think it's really important. You know, one of the things that I have everyone that I do and that I've been doing my whole life is um, ending my day thinking about the most important question. And what I do, um, and then waking up in the morning first thing, pre-input and brainstorming on it. This is a incredibly powerful tool that I I learned from my dad, who's a great writer, um, in his creative process when I was, you know, seven, eight years old. And and, um, Hemingway wrote about it in his writing process. Um, It's been a huge part of my life for decades. Focusing the mind, ending the day strong, like I mentioned before, and focusing on what matters most, and building the musculature of focusing your like you're being on not all this ancillary stuff that just comes at you, but what really matters the most. Um, releasing it, not stressing out about, all, about it all night, sleeping well. And then first thing in the morning, pre-input, not after checking the news or checking Bloomberg or checking Twitter or checking any, or checking stock prices. Pre-input, brainstorming on it. Because what you're doing that way is you're systematically opening the channel between the conscious and the unconscious mind. And that's something that is something, you, you can do it systematically, day in and day out, rhythmically. So let's let's
0: give a specific example, and it could be a real-world example from your life, it could be a hypothetical, it could be a composite. What time... Give the example and when you would write it down. You put it at the top of a page
1: in a notebook before dinner and then put it away. What does it concretely look like? Again, I think that the the expression of it is individualized. Some people will write it down on a a piece of paper and write it down. Some people will write it in their Evernote um, and return to it. Um, I... I wake up usually around 4.30 and I um, I journaled for many years physically, but then I had so many journals and it was so difficult to get through them, I actually now use Evernote myself and I just pop it open and start riffing on it. Um, this is something that you can, like, you know, I, I use this, this term making smaller circles that initially when we do something we do it in this... Um, in this big way, and then we can kind of refine it, make the circles tighter and tighter and tighter. It's sort of referenced reference to, in the martial arts, you learn to, a body mechanic in a big motion, then you learn to condense it and make it more and more potent. So this is the kind of thing that you can do at night and then in the morning, but then ultimately, I think, throughout the day, it's very important to, to do this. Um, before you go to the bathroom, pose yourself a question, and then don't check your phone while walking to the bathroom, release your mind, and then come back from it, and then think of, about return your mind to the question, because what you're doing this way is you're, you're training your ability to focus on what matters most. This is what I call the MIQ, most important question. And I have, you know, I think that MIQ training is one of the most important things that, that a decision maker can do, because the best way to train an analyst in a discipline is to train them in, in knowing where to look, what matters most. And so there's a system that emerges from this day architecture. Imagine the evening, morning rhythm, and then three or four reps of it throughout the day. And then imagine you have a team where you've got a leader who say, is at a higher level in a certain discipline and you've got a group of analysts beneath. If you have the system I call MIQ gap analysis, where everybody is doing this most important question training, initially one rep, but then multiple reps throughout the day, there's transparency throughout the team. And then... There's a periodic review. You talked about feedback. This is a really powerful way to to bring in healthy feedback in an organization or in your own internal structure. Um, There's a review of what you, if you're doing it on your own, what was, what did you think the MIQ was now? And then a week later, two weeks later, from this elevated perspective, after you've done much more work, what do you think the MIQ was? And then the gap is often where you'll do your, you'll devote your work. Um, and in a team structure, you can have somebody overseeing the MIQs of, of a group of analysts and then sometimes tweaking it, sometimes making suggestions. And then team training, deliberate practice can be focused on the gaps that emerge where they become clear between what seemed like the most important question then and what later on, um, it became apparent, was the most important question. So
0: if we're looking at the most important
1: question, this MIQ is... Is it
0: always or does it tend to be something very specific like how do we how do we mitigate risk or how can I mitigate risk in position X or whatever it might be, or are there when in doubt or when unsure are there other types of most important questions that people can ask such as uh, I'm not really even sure uh, where where might I be neglecting risk, or something like that. Are there broader questions that yeah. you find are very useful when someone isn't sure on a on a very specific level where to focus for a most most important question? If someone's st- say struggling to come up with the MIQ. I,
1: I mean, I use this tool for for. Big thematic meta questions. I sometimes will use it for tactical questions. I'll, I'll use it um, sometimes for, for to get a clear read on on how I intuitively feel about somebody. Um, sometimes, sometimes the MI. So, so I can ask myself, um, do I intuitively feel that this is an ethical person, right? Or if someone is interviewing a leader of a company, um, you know, what's my intuition about you know the quality of his or her thinking? Um, or it can be a much more tactical question. It can be, it can be um, I, I study video of a surf or foil session I had, and then I might leave the whole question in my mind and just sleep on it and then emerge, like, w- what feels most, like w- what's the biggest lesson to be taken out of this? Or I might look at one thing and, and drill in um, like a very specific technical idea and try to refine it. I used to do this with opening, theoretical opening questions in, in the chess world where often I would be stuck and there would be an st- area of stuckness. Most great thinkers, I find, are like a knife through butter through most things, but then there's one or two places they're stuck. Those areas of stuckness are a really powerful place to, to focus this tool um, and it's really breathtaking what happens. I mean, you just get into the rhythm of waking up with the solution and you, you get used to, after you do this, you might have three or four times a day the kind of crystallization, miraculous realizations in your creative process that you might have had once every two, three months otherwise. And you said letting go as, as part of this process. Yeah. Does that
0: mean that in your case, I know it's individualized, but that you're not doing it right before
1: bed, you're doing yeah. it earlier in the day? How, how do you do that? It's not right before bed. And, and that's a great point. Yeah. Um, Hemingway used to to end his writing session, leaving something left to write. It was his version of it. Like mid-sentence or mid-paragraph? Mid-sentence, mid-paragraph, mid-theme, mid-story, mid-something. So like not, not being a writer who just writes everything. It's interesting to look at that idea through the internal versus external framing. He would, like, sometimes people feel, because they feel guilty if they don't do everything they could possibly do. So they finish, you know, they blow it out. As opposed to Hemingway always finish leaving something left to go. So leaving a sense of direction, like, activated. And then he would drink wine, he'd release, he'd relax. Um, maybe I would recommend doing, you know, meditating, uh, working out, having a great night's sleep, um, listening to some music, enjoy. Don't stress out all about, about the question all night. Don't think about it in bed. But then, and then waking up first thing in the morning and then put, returning your mind to it. So you really are releasing your conscious mind from it. And the art of letting go is a big one. I think it's one that people in this, this, in this um, industry have not taken on as intentionally as they should. This is an industry which people are on all the time constant inputs people are on their phones all the time people are listening to you while looking at their phones learning to to release that to focus extremely deeply on what you're doing and then and then like one more point Mm -hmm. if you look at the greatest competitors in the world greatest physical like athletes Marcelo Garcia who's a who I trained with for many years who I own a jiu-jitsu school within the city um, if you he's probably the greatest grappler to ever live and if you watch Marcelo in a world championship he would be sleeping literally minutes before um, a Munjal's semifinal or final, sleeping, and but you've never seen anyone turn it on more intensely. And if you look at great fighters, people think fighters are like jacked and intense, uh, but they're not. Like they're actually very relaxed. The greatest fighters are super relaxed when they're not fighting, but when they're in the the battle, you wouldn't believe the intensity. And even to deconstruct that further, if you watch a, a great, for example, boxer, the relaxation before a strike is delivered is incredible. So it's just the undulation. Like most people in high-stress decision-making industries are always operating at this kind of simmering six or four, as opposed to the undulation between just deep relaxation and being at a 10. And being at a 10 is like millions of times better than being at a six. It's not, it's just a different universe. Same, Same as being all in on a discipline is millions of times more intense than being, you know, 98 or 99%, let alone, you know, I could take it or leave it. Yeah. And just having observed
0: you, observed Marcelo, yeah, uh, certainly heard stories about, say, Floyd Mayweather before gigantic fights. Yeah. And uh, I heard a friend of mine who knows him said he walked into his dressing room after Floyd was like, yeah, sure, come on in. He's like, I don't, I don't want to interrupt you. I, I, you must be prepping. And he's like, no, I'm either ready or I'm not. And he was just yeah. sitting down watching some TV. <laughs> yeah. That it's, it's, in a way, your ability to avoid the simmering six uh, directly affects your ability to then ratchet up, to turn on to the 99% or the 100%. Right? if you're always at a simmering six, you're just at 50%
1: battery all the time. 100% and 50% intensity. And you you have no idea what your 10 is. And you
0: have, as you mentioned earlier... Uh, moved to Latin America. I was convinced, as someone kind of born and bred here, I, I thought the Waitskin clan, like a group of hobbits, was just going to live in this little corner of Manhattan for forever, as long as the human race yes. would survive. And uh, and yet, you you moved to a very remote location, and you have, in many areas now, in a very clear way, created a lot of slack and sort of white space for deep work. Uh, How would you sell that? Not necessarily moving to the jungle, but how would you train or how do you train some of your performers to stay away from the siren song of FOMO, fear of missing out, the sort of temptation to distraction? Because you're very good at deliberately Blocking it out. What do you what do you say to people who are tethered to phones, locked in front of a Bloomberg, who have trouble creating that those broader blocks of time?
1: Yeah. Well, the art of saying no, which you and I have spoken about a lot, is is a really important one to take on. I, I mean, in my life today, I'm I'm um, I'm training as intensely as I've ever trained. I'm training, but the goal is virtuosity, not a world championship. But I'm training as if, as intensely as if I was training for a world championship. So my ocean training is maxed out intensity, four or five hours a day. And I'm, I love the work that I do with my, my, my core partnerships um, in the decision making space. And it's really beautiful to feel how my game and all of it has risen as I've moved away from everything. I, I think I was pretty good at saying no before living in New York, but in New York there's just so much incoming. But now I'm so far away. Um, and it's been, you know, this is a bit principle that I've cultivated for many years, but that I feel like I've only begun to see the potency of in the past couple of years since I've um, experienced like, the, the power of the empty space. So much of what we're trying to do as idea generators is get away from the thought constructs, the groupthink, um, the, the group biases, you know, where everyone is clustered. And it's really interesting to get away from it all, and like for me coming into New York City I've lived much of my life in New York, but now coming into New York City after not having been here for three, four months and living in a place which is just so different, um, I'm listening to monkeys and ocean sounds and and rain falling. You know, it's amazing how much I feel here that I didn't feel before, because living in a city you have to close down a lot of your pores because of the ambulance sounds, the technology, just the constant noise. So living here you have to shut some, a lot down. It's very interesting if you open your pores, getting away from it, then coming in, how much more receptive you are. I think it's true mentally with ideas. I think that if you get away from from a lot of the noise, it's, it's, a, it's much easier to take that 30,000 foot view and, and see what really matters. Um, and see the core patterns that are, that are operating. It's like that idea, uh, you know, that great David Foster Wallace um, discussion around this is water built around the metaphor of a fish swimming in water doesn't does know what water is I mean it's very important to see what our water is and I think getting away or structuring a day so you have I mean meditation is an incredible, power, incredibly powerful internal tool for cultivating this if you're meditating 30 minutes or an hour in the morning and then again later on and I, I have some dear friends in this industry who, who are um it's, it's like that. It's like moving to the jungle in some sense. You, you have the ability to just see through so much of the crap um, and focus on what matters Matters most. And what matters most, in, in what matters most
0: we, we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I, I think is, is your ability to determine what matters most is uh, affected by your ability to identify your zone of genius yeah. in a way. right? Yeah. And that also your... Uh, excitement about or predilection to go from zero to 100 is also uh, dependent on operating in your zone of genius. You've been very, very good at that. How do you suggest or do you have any words of wisdom for people who are trying to determine in their world, whether that's sports, investment, you can pick one or it could be general, like how they determine where that zone of genius is? Yeah.
1: Um, That's a great question. I've I've started writing... um, 15 years, I wrote The Art of Learning 15 years ago and I just started writing again recently and um, it's been beautiful to kind of re-enter that terrain and a lot of what I'm, I've been starting is, is this, this question of why self-expression because a lot of what I'm writing about is a life of, of how to live a life of self-expression which is what you're asking about but, and then why self-expression and then how do we get there and I think that, that, that learning who you are as a learner is incredibly difficult and I think um, obviously it's great to have... Um, an ecosystem around you that can help you understand it. Um, if you've got people who can really take, take you for who you are, as opposed to putting their own constructs on you, which is very difficult, because people are trying to maintain, to justify their own decisions, so they're trying to box you into those. I think that, that um, I mean, there, there's so many frames in order to understand who we are. I mean, are we a visual kinesthetic or auditory processor? Um, most people don't even ask this question. Um, do you love mountains or ocean or city? Do you like the rain? Do you, are you, do you like to control things or let things, you know, let things rip in a more relaxed way? Um, what are the patterns behind your, your greatest successes? What are the patterns behind your biggest errors? Um, I like to look at that personally, professionally, technically and psychologically. Um, in other words, breaking down the boundaries between your personal life and your professional life. Um, and think breaking and, and looking at things both in terms of technical specific errors and, and brilliant creations and more thematic and psychological um, kind of meta manifestations of that tactical um, example. W- w- what are the things that have driven our greatest insights and what are the things that have locked us up most in life? And understand those and look at, look at what the, the, the seeds of each one of these. I mean this is a big part of what, what I do in my work. And I think it's so important to be patient with this process. I think that it's very easy for people to follow the mental models of others or follow the paths of others. Um, and it's usually disastrous. If the goal of... From, from my perspective, the goal is unobstructed self-expression. So first we under, have to understand what self-expression is and who we are as a learner. We have to embrace every little, you know, element of our funk and build around it. Um, and I tell you, like... It's such a beautiful thing that happens. And I think that a big part of being all in on something and falling in love with something so deeply that you're, just, you're eating it, you're breathing it, you're sleeping it. You, you wake up in the morning wanting to do it. You want to train at it. Being just on fire, stoked out of your mind on the thing is feeling like you're expressing yourself through what you're doing. Like if you're a writer or a chess player or you're writing books and doing brilliant podcasts like yourself, if you feel like you're expressing the core of your being through what you're doing, then it's beautiful if you feel like you're living in someone else's model or even if I'm taking on an art like surfing um, and I'm doing it in a way that someone else tells me to do it versus a way that expresses the core of my being it's a different world Um, so it's not so easy to get to know ourselves but I think the art of introspection um, psychologically somatically is one of the most important that we can take on. Yeah. And I just want to thank you personally, we're out of time, but for helping me
0: to take the snow globe of life and just yeah. to put it down long enough to let it settle so that you can see more. I think that's one, uh, it's, it's, I wouldn't say a gift that you have. I mean, it is a gift in a sense, but it's a talent and a skill you've developed. Yeah. It's like putting the snow globe down long enough so that you can see through it. And uh, thank you for making the time, coming out of your your reclusive jungle
1: habitat and uh, sharing with us today. Thank you, man. And I want to thank Graham Duncan, who's co-chairing this, who's a dear friend of mine. And I I think this is, I've been observing this event for so many years, such an important cause. And um, I think it's awesome what you guys are doing. And and Graham, much love, man. (laughs) All right, thanks everyone. Thank you guys. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just
0: a few more things before you take off. Number one.